Fair warning. Had some dental work done this week. So the spit range has increased significantly. Amanda came back to see. I was at the dentist for four hours Tuesday. Crown, crown, filling, extraction. That was my Tuesday. And she came back to talk to me. I'm like, I my papa. She had her teeth cleaned. She's like, I come back to sit with you. I'm like, all right, what you want to do? Mouth felt like it was this big. Okay, and this, I just have to tell you this because it's pertinent or not. I got home and my mouth started getting unnumb. Something felt really weird where they had pulled that tooth. I'm like, well, it's just it just feels weird. I'm like, nah, something's hitting my lip up here. She said, let me see. I pulled back my lip. She went, I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> my tooth beside it was pointing out, straight out, like toward my lip. And she's like, I thought you, it was going to be like, she's like, but that's really moved. Great. You know, outside of the pain of all this, I've got this thing now. So next morning, I'm like, I'm just going to go out there and talk to the dentist. And, you know, because I didn't want to call and say, hey, my tooth feels funny. It's pointing out. Well, come in a couple of days. So I went in, sat down. And this really has nothing to do with the message. Just so you know. And it's just personal test. It's testimony time. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> I go in and he says, let me see. And uh, he pulls my lip back and he goes, oh. I'm like, <laughs> he said, it is pointing out. I'm like, yeah. So my tender gums here where he just pulled that tooth, he just starts pushing on that tooth. And I'm going, ah, ah, ah. And he's like, let me numb you like he was disgusted with me. <laughs> All right. So two shots of Novocaine. He said, let me, let me let that work. He said, this happens. Teeth move. He said, when you pull a tooth, you're actually breaking a bone. You're shifting things around. He said, so we'll, we'll see if we can push it back in. Okay, so I'm feeling my mouth go numb. And he comes in and he starts pushing, which I didn't feel this time, thank God. And all of a sudden I hear, pop! He's like, there it goes. Pop back in place. So it's still not completely in place, so my eth and my elv feel funny. So if they sound funny, you know why. I just had to clarify that this morning. Huh? I'm not drunk. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I want to start the message now with a story that John Piper told in one of his messages in that he preached on our text today. In 1759, William Cooper was 28 years old and he had had a total mental breakdown and had tried three different ways to commit suicide. He became convinced that he was damned beyond hope. In December of 1763, so four years later, he was committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum, where the 58-year-old Dr. Nathaniel Cotton tended to the patients. By God's wonderful design, Cotton was also an evangelical believer and lover of God and the gospel. Cotton loved Cooper and held out hope to him repeatedly in spite of Cooper's insistence that he was damned and beyond hope. Six months into his stay, Cooper found a Bible lying, not by accident, on a bench in the garden. First he looked at John 11, which is Lazarus and that whole deal. And Cooper said he saw in John 11 so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that he felt a ray of hope. 
Then he turned to Romans 3.25, which is part of our text today. This was a key turning point in his life. He said, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement Jesus had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, Cooper said, I believed and received the gospel. End of his quote. And then Piper finishes the, the passage this way. In June of 1765, which was how many years later? Six years since we started, two years since he was committed. Cooper left St. Albans and lived and ministered 35 more years, not without great battles with depression, but also not without great fruit for the kingdom, like the hymns, Oh, for a closer walk with God, the Spirit breathes upon the Word, and when we sang just a few moments ago, there is a fountain filled with blood. Our passage today is pure gospel. It's pure power. It is pure God. I want to look at it, and we'll get back to you, I think. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 through 26. Today we'll be ending, uh, we'll be going through the end of that passage, but we'll read this entire passage just like we did at the beginning of music. If you would stand with us while we read the Word of God. And I know some of you are like, we stand up, we sit down, we stand up, we sit down. We do this out of reverence for the Word of God and the God of the Word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. And now we trust in Your ability to merge those two, Your Spirit and Your Word, to make us more like Your Son so that you get glory in it all. We trust your word. We trust your spirit. We trust your son. Father, we trust you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, quick, quick recap of where we've been overall. We are in the book of Romans. We're climbing the Mount Everest of Romans. We talked about that last week and in the introduction. We spent several weeks in the first three chapters through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and how everybody is bound up under sin. Everybody's without excuse before a holy God. We are in, as we climb up this mountain, we were just at the bottom and it's, it's magnificent. Uh, point two, justification by faith, the means for being right with God. And we'll finish that section up uh, probably three or four weeks. We're in no hurry. Uh, we're going to take our time through this 
through this great passage. So that's where we're at today, justification by faith, the means for being right with God. And we're going to walk our way through this passage. If you remember last week, we got to and are justified by His grace as a gift. That's as far as we got last week. And I want just monstrous concepts we talked about last week. I mean monstrous. We talked about righteousness, which means being right with God. We talked about faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We talked about Christ, who He is, who He was. We talked about sin. We talked about glory. We talked about being justified, and we saw that it was by grace as a gift. That's where we, And again, if you, if you didn't hear last week's message, I won't say this one won't mean anything to you. It will, hopefully. But they're really one message that we just couldn't do in one message. So you can, thankfully, go to the Internet, pull that up, and listen to that. If you did listen to it, listen to it again. And then listen to this in conjunction with it when we get it put up. Because these, <laughs> these passages are just phenomenal. And it's not me. I'm not saying I'm phenomenal doing it. This is just awesome. So what we're going to do today... We're going to start here in verse 24 at through. So, and are justified by His grace as a gift. That was the end of last week. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, just I don't even know where to start here. Um, again, we covered the first half of this verse last week, albeit somewhat meagerly. You just don't have enough time. If, if you read... Ezra and Nehemiah says that they stood and read the Bible for a quarter of the day in the pouring rain. I'm like, that's what we need. Not the pouring rain, but we need a quarter of the day where we can just read the Word and you're going, no way. Food's cooking, smell it. This is just... You, you'll never plumb the depths of this. Never. And if we could just spend more time, I would. But I won't do that to you. So we covered what we could of this last week. We spoke of being justified and we spoke of grace. This verse makes it clear that justification is by grace and that grace is both explicitly and implicitly a gift. Did you hear that? What can you do to earn grace? Absolutely nothing. Because if you earn it, then it's not grace. If you earn it, okay, Christmas is coming up, right? What if somebody gives you a gift and you're like reaching in your wallet? Here, let me give you a dollar for that. You know, I, It's not a gift anymore if you can do anything to pay for it, right? Somebody... I had some one time I had a very kind couple give me a vehicle. It was a nice Chevy Tracker. It was four year, four model years old, and they said, "Here, we want you to have this." Okay, well let me let me dig out. I got twelve bucks in my pocket. Is it? Yeah, it's ludicrous to even think about. It's the same way with grace. If you try to pay for it, you've cheapened it if that's at all possible, and it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. So being justified is a gift of grace from God. It comes from God. It is given by Him. What is? Justification. Justification is the right to stand in front of God, to stand in God's presence. You have that right. And it's given to you as a gift by grace, by God. But also remember that all of this was said to be done in verse 21. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, I'm not going to flip back there to manifest the righteousness of God. So this is from God, and it's also for God. 
So what does that mean? It means that God granting the gift of grace that leads to our justification is done to show His righteousness. We're quick to insert ourselves in that and make it about us. Listen, this is not about us. This gift of grace, this justification, this righteousness is not about woo-hoo, we get to have a grace party. It's about woo-hoo, look who God is. That's what all... And it, again, it's imperative that you remember that as we go through this. It means that God granting the gift of grace that leads to our justification is done to show His righteousness. It's for Him, all of it, and don't forget that. Even what we get that benefits us is for God's glory, to show Him off. And that's good. God is what's best for us. And when He is displayed as glorious in, toward, and through us, it's a win-win situation. So, after seeing justified and grace as a gift together there, we get to our next big concept, which is redemption. We sang a lot about this this morning. Here's our Greek for the day. Apollotrosis is the Greek word for redemption. Translated as redemption nine times in the authorized version and deliverance once. And the word redemption means a releasing effected by payment of ransom. What do we sing? Rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven. A releasing effected by payment of ransom. A redemption, deliverance. Liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. So when we talk about redemption, and it says that we've been redeemed through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to be redeemed carries with it the thought of being purchased, bought with a price. And along with that thought, it implies that the one who was purchased was held prisoner. And that should make us ask a couple of questions. Questions, who was held prisoner and who was holding them prisoner so that they had to be ransomed? Now this was interesting to me. You probably have an idea of who was being held ransom for ransom and what they're being held ransom for. I want to go through three verses. Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us, what? Captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Tuck that away. Another verse, Galatians 3, 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So who is we here? Who is Paul talking about in Galatians and in Romans? Who is we? Christians, believers. And we were held captive under what? Huh. That struck me as weird. And when we're talking about being redeemed, and when we talk about being ransomed, we're being redeemed, we're being bought back, we're being ransomed from the law. But that's not all. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Paul says to Timothy, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now get a hold of this. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
So if you are an, if you're a believer, you've been ransomed from the law. If you're an unbeliever, who's holding you captive? If you'd asked me Tuesday when I was numb, I'd have said the devil. But today, the devil. So I want you to get a hold of two things here when we talk about ransom, when we talk about redemption. The first two passages said that believers were held captive by the law before faith came. And the last passage here says that unbelievers are held captive, are held captive by the devil to do his will. So when we talk about redemption, when we talk about ransom, a believer as someone redeemed by God we have been ransomed from the law and also from the devil. This is a huge... Pat- and we're not going to get into it any more than we, are, than we just did. But unbelievers are in the snare of the devil having been captured by him to do his will. We have been ransomed from that. Those who have been redeemed from the law and from the devil. Now, again, I would love to spend a lot more time there. We just don't have time to do it. So as a believer, as someone redeemed by God, we have been ransomed from the law and the devil. A price was paid to free us from obligations to the law and to free us from the control of the enemy. And what price was that? Look back in our Romans passage. The end of the verse points it out, through the redemption that is what? In Christ Jesus. The redemption, the ransom that was paid for us was in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the price that was paid. Jesus paid it... I know that sounds normal, run-of-the-mill, Christian cliche. But what does it mean? What does it mean that our redemption was in Christ Jesus? We have to move into the next verse to really find that out. Whom... God put forward, and it's like a cruel joke that you have dental work and propitiation is your main word for your passage. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let's stop there for a second. That's our next big concept. So we said our redemption was in Jesus and then we see Jesus described thusly, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Our redemption was in Jesus... But what did that entail? Did Jesus come and pay money for our souls? Did He come and buy us from a slave market like so many cattle? How did He free us from the law and the devil? It says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. Now this word propitiation is a big time concept. This is the gospel in a word is basically what it is. And we're going to look at it, and we're going to deal with it thoroughly. Look at that. Yeah, I'm going to read every bit of that. Two times in the New Testament, hilasterion. Well, I just whipped that out. How about that? Two occurrences in the authorized version, translated as propitiation once and mercy seat once. What? Relating to an appeasing or expiating. We'll get to expiation. Just You'll hear that, hear that a bunch in this uh, definition. Having placating or expiating force, expiatory. You're like, well, I don't know what expiation means. We'll get there. A means of appeasing or expiating a propitiation. 
used of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim on the annual Day of Atonement. What that means is once a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament where nobody was allowed to go because that's where God dwelt. And what he had to do was he had to sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant which was called the mercy seat. He could do it once a year and if he wasn't clean, if he wasn't right, they tied bells around his ankles and uh, a rope around his ankles so that if he fell dead in the presence of God because he wasn't right, they could yank him out of there. Literally. One time, once a year, he had to go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So this word propitiation has that in mind. The right of signifying that the life of the people the loss of which they had merited by their sins was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim and that God by this ceremony was appeased and their sins expiated. Again, we'll get to that. Hence, the lid of expiation, the propitiatory, an expiatory sacrifice, a expiatory victim. Now let's talk about expiation because you have to understand expiation to understand propitiation. I'm going to ask you guys to go with me to Asian Station this morning. We're going to talk about a lot of Asians, not Haitians. Propitiation we've done talked about in part. What we're going to talk about now is expiation. I want to tell you what expiation means. Expiation is a taking away of something. And there are actually versions of the Bible where the ESV says propitiation, they actually put in expiation. Please stay with me. I know you're going, blah, 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 blah. stay with me. They're entwined, expiation and propitiation, but they're not the same. So what is propitiation? What is expiation? And what is the relationship to each other and our redemption? I want to read a section. I was going to try to describe this and I found a, a little tidbit that R.C. Sproul wrote that makes it so much better and clearer than I could ever make it. He says this, Let's think about what these words mean then, beginning with the word expiation. The prefix ex, E-X, means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. Is that clear? Expiation, taking something away. In biblical terms, it has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. By contrast, propitiation has to do with the object... Now listen, I'm asking you to engage here. Propitiation has to do with the object of the expiation. The prefix pro means for. So propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude so that He moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, we are restored into fellowship and favor with Him. He goes on to say, in a certain sense, propitiation has to do with God being appeased. We know how the word appeasement functions in military and political conflicts. And he gives this illustration. We think of the so-called politics of appeasement, the philosophy that if you have a rambunctious world conqueror on the loose and rattling the sword, rather than risk the wrath of his blitzkrieg, you give him the student land from Czechoslovakia or some such, some such chunk of territory. So this guy's saying, I'm going to take over the world. So what you do is you take him, you give him a section of the world and say, here, take this. 
Maybe that'll calm you down. You try to assuage his wrath by giving him something that will satisfy him so that he won't come into your country and mow you down. That's an ungodly manifestation, Sproul says, of appeasement. But if you're angry or you are violated and I satisfy your anger or appease you, then I am restored to your favor and the problem is removed. And he finishes like this. The same Greek word that is translated by both the words expiation and propitiation from time to time, but there's a slight difference in the terms. Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition toward us. It is what Christ did on the cross and the result of Christ's work of expiation, the result is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. Now, let me boil that down. Do you see the relationship? Expiation takes guilt away from us, which changes our attitude. Okay? Our feelings toward God, which was guilt, shame. We should come into God's presence in and of ourselves guilty, shameful, sinful. Expiation takes those feelings of guilt away. Propitiation then satisfies the wrath of God, which changes His attitude his feelings toward us. We are, by nature, Scripture says, children of wrath. In our sin, everybody in here, who's a sinner? Who's a sinner? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're a sinner. Everybody. Level 5 sinner. Everybody. And God should be mad at us. Listen, let me say something a little risque. This whole gospel that we preach of easy believism that God loves everybody all the same is very dangerous because until you know that you are under the wrath of God, you're not going to try to escape from the wrath of God. If you think that God loves you just the way you are, like some sappy Billy Joel song, you're wrong. If you don't have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, listen to me, the wrath of God abides on you. And you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment with every sin that you commit. Does God love you? Does He cause His reign to fall on the just and the unjust? Yes, He does. And there is common grace involved for everybody. But you are not in a love relationship with God the Father if you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ. So what propitiation does is takes that wrath away. God's attitude toward us changes. Expiation changes our attitude. Propitiation changes God's attitude. <clears throat> Excuse me. Expiation takes our sins away. Propitiation is God venting His full wrath against that sin, but taking it out on Christ instead of us. And you have to understand this if you're going to understand who God is and how He saves people. God hates sin. He hates it. We're born sinners and have sinned in so many ways we can't even begin to know how right God is to be offended by us or actually disgusted by us. Remember in the first part of Romans where Paul said and said and said and said that everybody's a sinner. So how is a holy God supposed to remain holy and let sinners into His presence? Enter Christ. He comes... He goes to the cross and He spills His blood. Why? Why? 
why what seems like some people say divine child abuse? Why would God punish a son and make him spill his blood? To pay the ransom for our sins. To pay the ransom for our sins. Jesus Christ bled to pay the ransom for our sins. Our sins have made us debtors to God. We owe Him payment for the offenses He has suffered by our sins. Stay with me. We owe God recompense. But the problem we have is that it is so great, the debt that we owe, nothing, 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 nothing we could ever do, ever say, ever feel could appropriately pay for that debt to appease God. Everybody is in that condition. So, God sends Jesus, His Son, who is God in the flesh, who never sins, but hangs on a cross. And listen, if you don't hear anything else today, listen to this. Hangs on a cross, and while He is on that cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God for the sins that we have committed. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God for the sins that I committed, that you committed. He, Jesus, becomes a propitiation that takes away our sins. Our sins are removed, they are expiated from us, so that we don't feel the guilt of them anymore. And Christ pays the penalty for them by His blood, which is our propitiation in God's sight, taking away God's anger toward us. But that's not all. There's another Asian that's important here too. Not only are our sins taken away through expiation, not only is God's wrath removed through propitiation, because if He stopped there, we still wouldn't make it into heaven. Why? Let me tell you why. As we go to another Get this. We are given the very righteousness of Christ through imputation. Expiation took our guilt away. Propitiation took God's anger away. And now, here's the gift. Imputation is God saying, since Jesus paid the penalty for your sins... Not only will I take your sins away, I'll give you His righteousness. At this point, we should jump up in our seats and say, yes, yes, yes. Because of nothing that you've done, God has said, I'll give you the righteousness of Christ. Imputation. Imputation is where we get the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift of God's grace. Christ takes all your sins. God spends all His wrath on those sins, therefore satisfying His rightful wrath against our sins. Then He gives us the righteousness of Jesus so that we can be allowed, no, welcomed in the presence of God. You see, if you're going to be in God's presence, you have to be righteous. Nothing you can do can make you righteous. You need what some preachers call an alien righteousness. Righteousness outside of yourself. Something that's not your own. 
so that you can be seen as right in God's sight. And this righteousness is given to you as a gift of God's grace. You get it at the cost of God's Son's sacrifice. He pays, you receive. He works, you rest. God can't let you and your sin go unpunished. So He punishes the perfect Christ in your place. Jesus pays the penalty for your sins and you are given credit for His perfect life as a gift of God's grace. I don't feel like I can say it enough. You take my junk, punish it in the person of Christ, spend your wrath, and then say, you know what? I took your junk, now I'm going to give you the greatest thing in the universe. For free. (laughs) your sins are removed through expiation God's wrath is removed through propitiation Christ's righteousness is received through imputation and your standing with God is now you are right through justification and now you have the gift of God the greatest Asian of all salvation That's the good news. That's the gospel. And it is unreal. It is truly unreal. You've done everything that deserves punishment. Christ did nothing that deserved punishment. He took the punishment, gave you His perfection. God says, now you are justified, you are righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. You are saved. Now how is all of this done? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by what? Faith. I trust through faith that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient, and that God has done all of this for what reason? To show God's righteousness. God comes out looking glorious in all of this as He holds us up as trophies of His grace showing His ability to make the vilest sinners right with Him. And not just by saying, well, your sin's okay, you can come on into heaven. Not that at all. The rest of the verse hints hints at that when it says that God had in His divine forbearance done what? Passed over former sins. God had every right to judge sinful sinners by punishing them, but God had planned, listen, from before the foundation of the world that Jesus was the Lamb who would be slain to pay the penalty for all of the sins of all of His people. And He also knew that hell, which had been prepared for the devil and his angels, would suffice to pour out His wrath upon unrepentant sinners for eternity. Sin would be paid for in one of two ways. 
your sins will be paid for in one of two ways. Either in hell for eternity, for someone that doesn't show faith in Christ, or your sins will be paid for in Christ, who bore the wrath of God for those sins for all who would believe. Sin's a big deal. And God doesn't just excuse it and say, well, come on into heaven because I love you. He says, I'll pour out my wrath upon my son to show you how much I hate sin and to show you how much I love you. Verse 26. All of this was done for what reason? It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See? It was all to show what? Your good fortune? Your reward? No, 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 no. His righteousness. And when? Now. Why? So that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've said through both weeks of this that it was about God, about Him and His righteousness. He would not be righteous if He allowed unrighteous people into His kingdom. He could have glorified Himself, listen to me, He could have glorified Himself by punishing sinners by sending them all to hell to bear His wrath forever. He would have been glorified through that. He would have been perfectly glorious if He would have done that. And He would have been just as glorious as He is now. But, listen to me, He chose to justify sinners. He chose by grace to give us the righteousness of Christ so that we could reign and rule with Him for eternity instead. And since Jesus was faithful, we receive the benefits of that faithfulness, which is His righteousness. We who deserve wrath receive grace. Oh my goodness. No, no, no. Oh, His goodness. This is what William Cooper came to understand that freed him from his madness and saved his soul. It's not up to us to work to satisfy God's righteousness. We receive this righteousness as a gift of His grace that He might be shown to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is literally like walking out into a wide open field and trying to take everything in at once. The sunset and the clouds and the field and the trees and the people and everything. And you're going, I just, I need more eyes to see it all. I need more ears to hear it all. I need more sensors to feel it all. It is so expansive what we just talked about. It's more than you understand. It's more than I understand. And it is bigger than anything in the world. It's bigger than Paris. God bless them. It's bigger than ISIS. Okay. So now what I want to do, if you'll remember, we talked about a couple of problems in last week's passage and hopefully you see some problems in this week's passage that make you go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what about this? Remember this? Samuel Hustis et peccator. 
at the same time, I am righteous and I'm a sinner. Remember that? If you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, you don't remember that, I promise. That was uh, a Latin phrase that Martin Luther coined to talk about how we, in this present time, who have exhibited faith in Christ, exist. We have been declared righteous, but at the same time we're sinners. Now that's a problem. Because we just said God can't let sinners into His presence, right? How can a holy God let sinful man into His presence? That's what we talked about with expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, and salvation. God took away our guilt. He took away His anger. He gave us the righteousness of Christ. That's how He can let it. Now, am I perfect yet? I know some of you think, but trust me, I'm not. I'm, nobody thinks that. I hope you don't think that. I was perfect until my tooth got messed up, right? No. So I think we dealt with that pretty good today, going through Asian Station. Expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, salvation. Now, something we said last week. Do you remember when we when we defined faith? We went on later, we, we, we used Hebrews 11.1, 1, and then we went on later to Hebrews 11.6. And it said, Without faith it's impossible to please Him because if anyone wants to come to God, he must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Remember that? But we've seen through our sin passages, and Paul says it again, that nobody seeks for God. Right? As a sinner who abides under the wrath of God, I'm not seeking God. God is seeking me. I want to deal with that. If God's going to reward those who diligently seek Him, but we say that nobody seeks Him, how can we trust that we're going to receive the reward of God if we don't believe that we're seeking Him? Paul didn't talk about it too much here. He does in other places. But I want, I want to go back to the Old Testament. We've talked about these passages before in other, other uh, messages. Ezekiel 36, I'm going to read 11 verses. Stay with me. And then I'm going to read a passage out of Jeremiah too. This is in the Old Testament. This is what God says He will do under this new covenant that we're talking about in Christ. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. That's a good place for an amen, by the way. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Another place for a good amen. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. 
And there's a blank screen and I don't know why. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. Now that's a lot of stuff. Let me boil it down to this to you. When you can't save yourselves, when you can't seek for God, God says, I will cause you. I will act. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will cause you to seek me when you could not do it yourself. It's not the only time he says this though. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, which is exactly what we're talking about here in Romans, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, which was the law, by the way, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, they broke. Now, stop a second. Remember when we talked about covenants and the covenant that God made with Abraham? Who passed between the pieces? Only God. Abraham did not. And it was God's way of saying, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the penalty for you breaking the covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What's He going to do about that? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no If you're going to come to God, you must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Nobody seeks God. God says, I'll fix that. I'll put a new heart in you. I will cause you to walk in My commandments. Listen, that's the good news of our total depravity and God's free gift of grace. You, in and of yourself, are not seeking God. But listen to me. God is seeking you. You can't seek Him on your own, but He seeks you and then He causes you to want Him as a gift of His grace to show His goodness for His sake. Now, two questions that were raised last week. That was the first one. There's two more that were raised between last week and this week that I think can be answered by the same passage of Scripture, which we'll look at in a second. Two questions. What do we have to do if we're not supposed to do anything to receive righteousness? And why would God want to do any of this anyway? Let's look at a passage that we looked at part of last week. Ephesians 2, 1 and 10. We're almost done. I'm doing all right our condition. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Remember we were held captive by Him to do His will? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We've already talked about that some. But God... How many times do you see that phrase in Scripture? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
Who's us? Believers. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... Oh, tuck this away. He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Familiar passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We mentioned that last week. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And listen to this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My goodness, that's packed. All of this is received by faith to answer the question, what have we got to do to receive righteousness? We do not do anything. We rest completely in the work accomplished by the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not doing, but receiving. Not trying, but relying. And then the second question, why did God do any of this? He didn't have to. He was perfectly glorious before and without creating us, much less before justifying sinners and allowing them into His presence. I don't know if I busted these out separate. I did. No, I didn't. Let me go back to verse 7 of the passage we just looked at. So that in the coming ages... Why did God do this? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God do this? Did you see the answer? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For we are His workmanship. For what purpose? Listen to this. Of this gospel, Paul says in Ephesians 3, 7 through 12, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. That's the gift of apostleship. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Are you ready for this? So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Why did God do all this? This verse is so that through the church. Those who have placed their faith in Christ, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I want you to get a hold of this picture. 
We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word workmanship in the Greek carries with it the thought, the intention of masterpiece. Listen to me. Infinite, omnipotent, glorious God who has spoken everything into existence that we see, the sunset, the trees, the field, the people, all that stuff we want to look at and say that's beautiful. He holds us up. And He says, this is my masterpiece. I want to tout, I want to shout to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this is my wisdom clearly displayed. This is my greatest work. If you are here this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ for your salvation, I want you to hear what God says because of what we looked at in Romans, because of expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, and salvation, God now holds you up as His masterpiece and says, this is my wisdom. Bow before it. That's who we are. That's why God did this, to show His wisdom through us. That, there's no words for that. Look around. I know I ask y'all do this a lot. Look around. Look at the people in this building. God is displaying His manifold wisdom through you, through me, through us, through the global church. God is displaying His glory through us. God holds us up and says, my masterpiece, my greatest work because of what Jesus Christ did. He could very well just hold Christ up, but He's chosen by grace to hold us up and say, this is my greatest work. This is my masterpiece because of the faithfulness of Christ. Application? <laughs> Shine, church. Be glorious. Display the wisdom of God in this broken, crushed, disgusting world. And it's disgusting sometimes. This is my Father's world. He created it. And everything is going according to His plan. And He wants to show that in the midst of all this junk, He's still wise. He's still glorious. He's still good. And as the authorities and the principalities come and try to accuse God and accuse us, God says, the very righteousness of Christ is what I see when I look at those people. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't trust Christ, you're guilty. And the wrath of God abides on you. But God, being rich in His mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, offers you today the very righteousness of Christ.
you can be done with your guilt and shame and your sin. He will expiate it away from you. You can be delivered out from underneath the wrath of God. He will propitiate Himself towards you. And He will give you the very righteousness of Christ through imputation. You will be justified and you will be saved. If you will simply say, God, I believe it. There is a false faith. There is a verbal faith that is not true faith, that is not saving faith. I'm not saying if you just say the magic words, you'll be saved. But the power of God for salvation is given through the gospel. And what we've spent an hour here doing just now is preaching the gospel. And the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation for those who will believe. So if you're not saved here this morning, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you can do that today. The door is flung open. And He says, come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, vile sinners, and I will give you the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Thank you, God, for grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for taking my guilt away. Thank you for removing your wrath from me. Thank you for giving me the very righteousness of Christ so that I can stand in your presence justified. Thank you for a salvation that is eternal, that promises me not just heaven one day, but the very presence of God right now. So that when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Right now, God, would you draw people to yourself? Jesus, you said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus, we lift you up. We lift up the cross this morning. And we say thank you. We do not deserve it, but you have lavished it upon us. Holy Spirit, convict sinners of their sins and show them the great forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. So that you, God, may be shown as glorious. So that you may show your manifold wisdom through us. In this world and in the ages to come before the rulers and principalities. 
for your righteousness sake, for your glory's sake. We ask that it be done, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now would you stand and let me pronounce this beautiful benediction over you. If I can get it pulled up, I'm sorry. Should have had that ready. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.